If you would this morning, I'd love for you to go with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read from verses 13 to 34. And as you turn there, uh, we're not in currently in a series. We're going to begin a brand new series in July. It's called Come to Worship. It's going to be a four-week series in which we talk about four different postures of worship. And one of the things I'm excited about as we talk about worship, we, we begin to understand that worship has very little to do with the style of music or even music in and of itself, but that worship is a lifestyle. And I believe that God has called us to be a church that worships. And we worship God because of who he is and because of what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about one posture is lifting your hands. Another posture is on bended knee. Another posture is worshiping God with your heart. And it's going to be a wonderful time. It's going to start in July. It will be the first week. So I encourage you to come and invite some people to that as well. But Luke chapter 24, this is the last chapter in the book of Luke. This, t- this passage of scripture has a subheading on it on the Emmaus Road. It takes place immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus Christ three days later as he is risen. So let's go to that and read. It says, That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And I've lost my place. (laughs) I should not have opened my water. Written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Jesus asked, he says, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty leader in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. And then some of the women from our group of of our followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, he said, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets, what they all wrote in the scriptures... Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, Stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he, Jesus, took the bread and blessed it, and then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him, and at that moment, Jesus disappeared. And they said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven disciples and the others who gathered with them who said, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. I just ask that you would help us as we spend the next few moments together talking about this passage of Scripture and your word to just be so aware of the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work, especially in the areas of our lives where we are struggling the most. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me speak this message efficiently and effectively and above all else, quickly. Everybody said... 
Amen. Has uh, anybody in here, have you ever gotten involved in something thinking it was one thing? And then you find out shortly down the road or maybe a little ways down the road that it was not at all what you hoped it would be. You ever like say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to get this because the store advertises it. And you get there and it's like a bait and switch. So they got a TV for 100 bucks and you get there and they only had one. But now they got you in the door and they got another one for 250 And so you get the raw end of the deal, right? The short end of the stick. You get involved in, in something. It's thinking it's one thing, but then quickly find out this is not at all what you thought it would be. I remember I was 19 years old, and I had just gotten a new job. I was going to work for Sears Outlet Store in Fenton, Missouri, at the Scratch and Dent Place, selling appliances. Went to the interview. All that was good. And they said, there's only one more thing that you need to do is you need to go to this diagnostic center and you need to have a drug test, right? You do the little bathroom thing in the cup, and you hand it to the person really weird and uncomfortable. And so I said, okay, I can do that. And so... I go to the diagnostic place, and I get there, I sign in, I fill out all the paperwork, I sit down, and they open the door, and I said, all right, Mr. Earls, uh, go ahead and, and come back. I said, okay. I walk through the door, and they said, okay, well, before we do your drug test, we have a few other things that we need to do. And I said, oh, okay. Um, never had to do other things besides the bathroom thing, but um, all right. They said, first, we need to get you on the scale. We have to weigh you. And I said, oh, okay. So I get on the scale, and they weigh me. And I get down, put my shoes back on. I said, all right, now we need to do a hearing test. I said, a hearing test? He said, yes, a hearing test. I said, okay. So I go in this little room. It's soundproof. I put the headphones on. They say, whenever you hear a beep, whatever side you hear the beep on, raise your hand. So right, left, right, left. I do the hearing test. I passed. And I get out. And they said, all right, now we need to do a vision test. I said, a vision test? They said, yeah, a vision test. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to sell appliances. But I guess Sears really wants to know if you can hear and see. I guess it's pretty, you know, two pretty good uh, things to have if you're going to sell appliances. So I do, the, I do the vision test. After I do the vision test, they said, okay, now we're going to do the drug test. I said, okay, great. I do the drug test. I come back out. They say, um, what we need to do is we need to schedule um, this, this is something that we need to do. We're going to schedule a little bit later. And I said, what do we need to schedule? They said, we need to have you come back and do some chest x-rays. I said, chest x-rays? They said, yeah. It's really important with the amount of walking and things that you're going to have to do. They want to know that everything is, is, uh, is good to go. I'm like, wow, for $7 an hour, this is a whole lot to do. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, we can schedule that. And uh, am, I, am I good to go? They said, no, there's just one more thing. Uh, we'll go here into this exam room, and the doctor will be in in just a few moments, and he's going to do a prostate exam. A pro- I'm no lie, prostate exam. I said, what? They said, yeah, and I'm being the obedient person I am, I said, okay. I go in the room. She's like, yeah, just, uh, just strip down to your underwear, and the doctor will be in a few moments. And so I go in the room and strip down to my boxers. I'm standing there, and I, and I realize that I have my cell phone with me, and my friend helped me get the job. And so I called my friend. I said, Kyle. I said, man, I'm, I'm at this diagnostic place, and I came here for the drug test, and I said, um, I, I did a hearing test. I did a vision test. I did the cup thing, uh, I scheduled chest x-rays, and now I'm standing in the room in my boxers, and they want to do a prostate exam. I said, did, did you have to do any of this? He said, no way, man. He said, you, you need to figure out what's going on. He said, I didn't have to do any of that. And uh, I said, okay. I closed the phone. The doctor walks in. He says, hello. I said, hello. He goes, okay, I'll put your hands on the table, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get through with this here in just a moment. And I said, look, sir, I said, before we go any further, I said, look, I'm 19 years old. Uh, I never had a prostate exam. I'm pretty sure I'm good to go uh, with that. I said, uh, I, I just, I just want to sell appliances at Sears. 
you know, right up the road, and I, I don't know what's going on. I kept talking to him, you know, with just my underwear on. And, uh, and he says, well, he opens up his folder, and he says, oh, you're not David so-and-so? I said, no. <laughs> David so-and-so was 47. I'm 19. And uh, he goes, well, hold on a second. He goes, what's your name? I said, I'm Josh Earls. He goes out, gets my folder, comes back in. He goes, oh, right. All you needed to do was a drug test. <laughs> and I said, oh, praise God. No prostate exam? No prostate exam. <laughs> Woo! It wasn't at all what I thought it would be. It was in there for over an hour. I called my mom and I said, Mommy, you'll never believe what happened. And she thought it was hilarious. And I had to preach that evening. But standing there going for a drug test, it turns into something that I never in a million years would have ever thought it would be. I think that on some level, we all, we all get involved in situations like that, right? We, we do things on, on the basis of, of an understanding that something is going to happen. And then, however long into the process, you're probably quicker than me. But uh, you realize, man, this, this is not at all what I thought it would be. This is, this is not what I hoped for. And it's not just with things that we do in life. I think sometimes we get that in that place with God. We get involved with something that we feel he told us to do. We've been obedient or we've taken that step of faith and maybe we're asking ourselves, this is not what I thought it would be. We're saying, God, I I did this because you told me to and it's not turned out the way that I prayed for it to turn out. It's not what it was supposed to happen. This was not supposed to happen, God. And what do I do next? And we find ourselves in that position We will have found ourselves in the exact same position that these people in the story had found themselves. You see, there were a group of people that had been following Jesus for three and a half years, hanging on every word that he said, seeing all the miracles that he had done, listening to what he was saying, that he was going to be the Messiah, that he was going to redeem all of Israel. And they had believed that he was going to rule as a king, a physical king, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government, and Israel was going to be set free. And they had believed all of that. And three days prior to this day in Scripture, they watched the man that they loved, the man that they traveled with, the man that they had given their lives to follow for three and a half years, being wrongly accused, beaten within an inch of his life, hung on a cross, crucified, died, and put in a grave. Now, he told them this would happen. He told them it would happen, but they they never really understood it. It never really registered in their minds. Maybe they didn't really believe it. Maybe they thought, oh, Jesus, that's not going to happen. You're the one that has come to save us. And three days after his death, three women go. three, Three of them are named. We have Mary Magdalene, Joanna, And we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they come to the grave and they have burial spices. What does that tell you? That tells you that they were not looking for a resurrection. They were looking to prepare the body for its journey. They get to the grave where Jesus is supposed to be and he's gone. Stones rolled away. He's nowhere to be found. They're freaking out. What's going on? Did someone steal the body? Where did the body of Jesus go? Because Jesus was, you know, he was somewhat of a revolutionary. The Roman government, you know, they crucified him. The Jews hated him. They didn't want any story to be true that he really could be resurrected. So there's a lot of things going through their mind, and they hear these, see these angels, and the angels say, of course Jesus is not here. He's resurrected. 
He is, he is who he says he is. He is, he is the Messiah. He is the king. And they still don't really understand. And they run back to where the disciples are, where Peter and James and John and all of them are. And they say, look, this is what happened. We, we went to the tomb and, and he's gone and we saw some angels. And I love what one translation says. It said the men didn't believe the women. And so they ran. And Peter outran them all according to Scripture. And in the Scripture that says that, Peter was the one dictating it. So he outran them all. He gets to the tomb. And of course, he finds it's empty. They're not there. Jesus is gone. And they, again, don't understand the, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believed that people could be raised from the dead. They saw Jesus himself do it. So the fact that he was risen from the dead wasn't such as a big deal to them. They just wanted to know where Jesus was. But it wasn't connecting with them that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was resurrected from the dead, which is the receipt that says paid in full that he is who he says he is, that he conquered death and sin, and that he has forgiven us of all of our sin. They didn't connect with that. It didn't sink in with them. And these two disciples are walking back to where they live, a seven-mile journey from the city of Jerusalem. They're disciples, so we know that they were followers of Jesus. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, in which Jews from all over the world had come because this is the celebration they had celebrated from since the time that God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. When Moses established the Passover celebration, this is a big deal. Jesus was killed during Passover, meaning he is The Lamb of God, right? He is the sacrificial lamb. It's all about him. They were there. They they saw the man that they followed and that they loved. They saw him be crucified. And they saw him put in the grave. And they are distraught. They are sad. They, They are thinking to themselves, what does all of this mean? This is not what we signed up for. Three and a half years ago or whenever they started following. We, we were confused and disappointed because they even tell Jesus. He was, Jesus, he was supposed to be the one who set us free and redeemed the whole nation of Israel. And they're walking two and a half to three hour journey back to where they live. And as they're walking on this journey, Jesus comes up behind them. Now they don't know that it's Jesus. The Bible tells us that They were kept from recognizing him, that God himself kept them from really recognizing the person of Jesus. And Jesus is just walking behind them, and I imagine they were walking somewhat slowly as they're trying just to articulate the hopelessness, the despair, the confusion of what's going on. And Jesus is just listening. And he inserts himself right into the middle of their conversation, and he says, what are you all talking about so intently? They were having an intense conversation. And they, only one of the disciples is named here. It's Cleopas. The other one is not named. And he asked this question to Jesus, not knowing who he is. He says, what do you mean? What are we talking about? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem that has not heard or seen what's going on? Now, they weren't being indignant. He was just being, he was flabbergasted by, who, what, what do you mean what's going on? And he begins to go through it and talk about Jesus, the one that we, we follow, the great prophet. He did mighty miracles of God. God had his hand on him, and he was the one. He was going to be our king. He was going to redeem Israel. But our religious leaders and Pharisees, they wrongfully accused him. They condemned him to death. He was put on the cross, and then he was put in the grave. And then these ladies that we know, they went there this morning, and he wasn't there. And then Peter, the other guys that we know went there, and he wasn't there. He, he's not there. We don't know where he is. We don't know what to do. We don't know what's next. That's what they're telling 
Jesus or this man whom they don't know is pouring out their hearts. And then Jesus, he says to them, he says, you foolish people. Or one translation said, you are, you are so slow to believe in your heart. You're thinking with your head. At first glance, that statement seems to be very um, aloof, doesn't it? It seems to lack any compassion. But really what Jesus was, if you, if you study it out, he was speaking in a compassionate tone because the scripture tells us that their faces were marked with sadness. He had been observing their conversation and listening and seeing them and he could feel the sadness and the hopelessness and the desperation in their hearts. And he begins to tell them, Didn't, don't you understand that this, these things had to happen? You know about it because it's in the scripture. Don't you know? And then what he does next is amazing. For the rest of the seven-mile journey, the Bible says that he goes back to Moses and to the prophets and goes through all of the Old Testament, expounding unto them the scriptures concerning himself. Just think about that. They had a front-row seat to a sermon preached by Jesus about himself for seven miles. He went back to the beginning into the books of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. He went through every scripture in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, saying, this one was about Jesus. This one was about Jesus. In Genesis, when it talks about this in the first couple chapters, that's me. I'm the seed of the woman. That's me. And then he went through the prophets, and he said, I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the, Judah. I am the rose of Sharon. I am Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I am the God who provides. I am the God who is your righteousness. And he goes through that. You know, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. And he went through all of them. And the rose of Sharon. I am, I am Isaiah chapter 53. It was my stripes. It was my blood that was poured out for you. He, he's the good shepherd. He went through all of that. And they're listening to this and hearing Jesus talk about himself. And they didn't know it was Jesus. They couldn't recognize him. And he just talks with them. Can you imagine that? I mean, you have to hear me every Sunday. But think, you could have a front row seat to the one who wrote the scriptures talking about himself, revealing it to them. The Bible says they get to where they're going to their home, to Emmaus. And I love what it says, that Jesus acted as if he wanted to go further. He acted as if he was going to walk on. And they, they say, no, 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 you have to stay with us. It's getting late. Please come home with us. Please come and, come and eat with us. Stay with us. They invited Jesus in. No, no, you have to stay with us. And so Jesus goes into their home, and the Bible says that they sit down and they begin to have a meal. And what I find interesting is, is that Jesus is a guest in their home, but yet he assumes the head position at the table. He's the one that takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it. Now, what's interesting in that culture is they have a very welcoming culture concerning when guests come over. Us in America, we aren't very welcoming of guests unless we know them. Right? This was a stranger. Jesus was a stranger because they didn't understand it, but they invite him in. In that culture, when a guest comes to your house, you prepare a great meal for the guest. You serve the guest. They are your guest of honor. But Jesus does not assume the position of a guest. He assumes the position at the head of the table, and he's serving them. And the Bible says that the moment that he takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it, that their eyes are open and they see Jesus. They recognize him. And in that same moment, Jesus disappears from among them. He's gone. And they recognize him. And they finally see him for who he is. And then I love the phrase that is uttered next from them. It says this, And they said to each other, 
I wonder if it was almost simultaneously. Cleopas and this other guy, they see Jesus, and I imagine they look to each other, and they both say almost simultaneously, didn't our hearts burn while he was talking with us and walking with us and showing us the scripture? Didn't we just, didn't we just burn inside? Didn't we just feel it? Have you ever been in an experience where you just, you, you, you feel the sensation that you're feeling? I mean, it is, it is visceral, like it's real. Maybe you've actually felt the presence of God and you can put words to it and articulate it and you can feel maybe on the day that you got married or the day that you were proposed to or the day that your child was born or whatever, you felt a burning sensation or something inside of you that there's, there's life here. There, there's something going on. And that was what came out of their mouth. Didn't our hearts burn as he talked with us and as he walked with us and they felt that even before they knew who he was they felt the presence of jesus and then it says this it says within the hour they were on their way back to jerusalem they just walked seven miles and now they're walking another seven miles 14 miles in one day i ran 13.1 and that was enough for me they're walking back and i bet you their journey back to jerusalem was faster than their journey to emmaus and they go back to tell the disciples that, hey, Jesus is who he says he is. He just, he just showed us every scripture in the Old Testament about who he is. He really is risen. And we understand what that means. We understand that Jesus, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. Messiah. He's not here to establish a physical kingdom and overthrow the Roman government. He's here to establish an eternal kingdom and forgive us of all of our sins and set us free. He is the one to whom the scripture is told about. He is the one that Moses pointed to. He is the one that Isaiah wrote about, that Jeremiah prophesied about. He's the one. We missed him, but he's the one. And he, 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 he told us he's the one. And the scripture says to all the disciples, said, yeah, we know, because he appeared to Peter. He really is risen, which is a neat, de- a neat detail because, you know, Peter was the one that denied Jesus right to his face three times. But Jesus takes a special moment to have a one-on-one face-to-face meeting with Peter to let him know. I'm here. I'm risen. And hey, I love you. As I looked at this story this week, I had no intention of, of preaching on it today. But in Guatemala, one morning I was just reading and, and it really started to kind of burn within me. And I begin to understand something in this story that I've never really understood before. This is not about a journey to a, a city or a village called Emmaus. This is the journey in which each and every one of us are on as we are on this journey of encountering Jesus, of meeting him. It's representative of our life that we walk and this journey that God has put us on. And, and at some point in our journey, we are going to encounter the person of Jesus Christ. Some of us in here, or maybe the majority of us, say, I, I have encountered him. I believe that he is the son of God. And that's wonderful. That's the reason that we do what we do. But we never stop walking this journey. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I've never, I, I, I don't, I've never accepted Jesus. I've never experienced that forgiveness. Or maybe I have and, I, and I've walked away from it. I'll give you an opportunity at the end of the service to connect with Jesus in a way that you never have before. But I think at times, even though those of us who do believe, we are walking down this journey. We, we, we've encountered Jesus, but yet maybe we haven't, really encountered him in the situation of our life that we're currently in, where we thought we got involved in something for, for this, but it turned out to be this, where we find ourselves proverbially standing in a room feeling ashamed and not very clothed.
that we don't know what to do. We, we, we don't know why we're there. We, we don't have a, a lot of hope and we have more confusion and, and despair than we do anything else. And we can experience that even if we believe in Jesus. We, we get to that spot and maybe some of it is directed at God because you did something that he asked you to do. You took that step of faith and now it's not how, it, it didn't turn out how you thought it should turn out. Your family's not in the right position. It wasn't fair that, that this happened and that I lost this person or I need to pay this bill and I can't afford it. And God, you're not doing what I thought you should do. Sitting in Guatemala this week, listening to the missionary who's been there since he's 25 years old, and he's done amazing things for God. And he said, a big portion of my, of my life as a missionary has been marked by loneliness, sometimes depression, and even sometimes I've been angry with God because he wasn't doing what I asked him to do. We find ourselves in those positions. And as I look at this story and I realize that we're all on this journey, it's not about Emmaus, but it's about Jesus. I see some things about God and his character that just really jumped out to me specifically on the plane yesterday. It's number one is that God longs to reveal himself to us. He longs for us to know who he is. We spend a portion or a majority of our lives trying to convince God to want to know us. But the reality is, is that he created you. And when he made the decision to sacrifice his only son, Jesus Christ, he chose to want to know you and for you to know him. He longs to reveal himself. And we see this Jesus coming up in the midst of this conversation. And why these two men? Only one of them is named. They're not part of the twelve. They're not part of the three. We hardly ever read about them in any other scriptures. Why these two men? Why take time to talk to these two gentlemen? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us specifically why these two. All it does is it shows us that he cared about these two gentlemen. And he begins to listen to their conversation. And then he inserts himself into the middle of it. And says, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And then spends the journey with them. Goes to their home with them. Because he longs to reveal himself to them. To say, I, I'm, I am all of those things that you said and so much more. And the second thing that I see is that, that God, he, he longs for an invitation. You may say, well, God doesn't need an invite. He's God. I'm with you. I don't think God really needs us to give him permission for anything. I think he's chosen to be in a relationship with us. And he's done everything that he needs to do with Jesus Christ. You know, we can't believe in Jesus apart from him. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of faith. But I still think that there's this level of invitation where we say, God, because of everything that you've done for me, I invite you in. I give you that invitation to be in my life. We see this in Scripture as they're walking, and I imagine they see their village, and, and they stop. And Jesus is kind of acting like he's going to keep going. And they begin to plead with him, no, 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 no. You have to stay with us. You have to come inside. It's late. Please, please stay with us. They extend to Jesus an invitation. Come in. Come into our home. And this is the spot where Jesus comes in and does not assume the position of a guest, but he assumes the position at the head of the table. Jesus doesn't just want to be at the table of your life. He wants to be at the head of the table of your life. He doesn't just become our Savior. He also becomes our Lord. 
He doesn't come to be a, to be a member on, and sit on the sideline and just watch what you're doing. He comes in to take control, which some of us are like, uh, I don't know if I want that, but we really need that because it's coming from a father who loves us so much who says, let me sit at the head of the table. Let me take the bread and break it and bless it. Let me fix that situation. What are the areas of your life here this morning where you have yet to give God the position at the head of the table? You may have invited him into your life, but we have so categorized our lives, right? To where we say, God, you can have this, God, you can have this, and God, you can have this, but this, I don't really know if I'm ready to give you this because it's really messed up. I want to work on it a little bit. I'm a little ashamed of that. I think those are the areas where God just wants to get his hands on, not to condemn, not to make us feel horrible about ourselves, but to fix and say, let me sit at the head of that table. Because I've already seen it, and I already knew what I was getting when I got you, and I've come prepared to fix it. I've come prepared to set you free. I've come prepared to take that hopelessness and that desperation and that confusion, and I've come to take all of that into myself, and I give you everything that I am, which he is peace. He is wisdom. He is love. He is provision. He is everything that we'll ever need. In fact, Paul said it like this. Paul said, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He wants to reveal himself to you. And he wants to be known by you. And he wants you to invite him in on the basis of who he is. He's a gentleman. He's a good, good father. And the last thing is, Todd makes his way back, is this, is I really believe that that God just longs for you and me, for our hearts to burn. Our hearts to burn with the knowledge of who he is. And the knowledge of who his son, Jesus Christ, is. When I hear that phrase, didn't our hearts burn, it makes me think of the Old Testament writer that says, it's like fire shut up in my bones. That there is just something so amazing about you, God. That it just, it just makes me burn. And I'm not saying it has to be a physical sensation, but just this sense of the person of Jesus Christ. You know, God comes, and he comes to us, and he, he, he encounters us on our journey. I believe that every person on the face of the earth will one day have an encounter with Jesus on, the, on their road. And Jesus will insert themselves in the converse, himself in the conversation. They may never recognize it, but he's there revealing all that he is. And it isn't amazing that you don't necessarily have to know who Jesus is and know who God is, but to feel his presence and to know, man, there's something different going on here. I think that if there are situations in your lives where you're on the journey and God is is there because he he never leaves us nor forsakes us, right? God doesn't get tired and sit down and say, I'll catch up with you. That's not how God works. He's always there. It's just that at times we can't recognize him. We, we can't feel him. We, we, we can't sense that he's there because we're so focused on everything else. We're focused on who did this and who said that. And God, you didn't do this. And this is going on and this is going on. All of our energy and all of our uh, everything that we have is just going in another direction. And God is just, he's there. He's always there. We just can't recognize him. He's saying, I, I just, just let me in. Just invite me in. And you'll, 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 you'll sense that I'm there. You'll know. Your, your heart will burn. It'll begin to burn with, with all that I am. And I love that the Bible is so specific. And it said that Jesus takes bread and he 
He broke it and he blessed it. Bread in the Bible is symbolic of life, right? Jesus is the bread of life. It's symbolic of provision. And he was saying, hey, look, I am the bread of life. I broke myself for you. And the moment that he did that is the moment that God opened their eyes and they say, it was him, it's him, he's real, he's real. Our hearts were burning and it wasn't just something that we were feeling, it was real, it's real. And it was so real to them that they got up and they ran back seven miles just to tell the disciples and the disciples already knew, he's, he, it's him, he's, he's real. He, he, he walked with us. He didn't get mad at us. He, he came in our house. And uh, he is who he says he is. He's the son of God. I, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I say, I wonder, God, are you, are you real? Are you, is, is, all this, is all this true? I mean, am, am, I, am I wasting my time? Am, am, could I be doing something different? God, are you real? I don't feel you. You're not, I don't sense you. Things aren't happening. I did what you said you, you told me to do, but, but I, nothing's working out, and I'm ready to cash in. I, I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods. I feel like I've been given the short end of the stick, God, and I just, I just want to know that you're real. I don't believe God is offended with that. I think God responds to that because he longs to reveal himself, and I'm real. But have you just said, God... I give you this piece of my life. Come sit at the head of my table. I'm tired of being at the head of the table. I don't know how to carve the turkey. I'm horrible. Can you just, can you sit at the head of the table? And you say, well, no, 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 I got to serve Jesus. I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I got to serve him. Yeah, we do. But the son of man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. He's still serving. He's still making intercession. He's still there providing and walking and talking with us. So when we serve him, we're just saying, I serve you because you serve me. We're not trying to earn something. We're not trying to pay it back. Salvation is not a loan. We've been taught it was a loan, but I'm telling you, it's not a loan. It's a guarantee. It's paid in full. It's a gift that God ain't looking to take back. Right? God never intended for us to walk around wondering if we were saved or not. Being so, you know, feeling so... uh, insensitive and so I can't even think of the word I'm so excited he didn't want us to feel so insecure that's the word insecure in our relationship with him that we're constantly trying to impress him and and make him love us and make him be proud of us when he says I am proud of you I created you how many of you as parents look at your children and say impress me do something to make me say that I love you if you could just be better at this we don't do that as parents why do we think that he does that Because if we think that he does that, we're saying in the same breath, we're greater parents than he would ever be. And that's not the truth. He loves us. He gave his son for us. Salvation is a guarantee. It's not an IOU. It's not pay upon delivery. It's a guarantee. We were in Guatemala this week. We encountered a lady who was on her journey. Her name was Marisol. She had three children. Oldest child was named Marisol. Her second child was named Joshua or Josue. And her third child was named Deborah. Deborah. I was talking with Marisol and getting to know her story as we were there on Tuesday to build her house. And I said, so Marisol, what's going on? And, and, and how, is, how was your life? All that kind of stuff. And she said, well, she said, I'm a single mother. 
She said, when my, I was pregnant with my second child, Joshua, six months pregnant, my son was work, my, excuse me, my husband was working in Dodge City, Kansas. He died. I was six months pregnant. They couldn't bring his remains back to the U.S., so he's buried there. I never got to say goodbye. I never got to do any of that. And, and then I had my third child, and they were 11, 6, and 3. And she said, about a year ago, I began praying to God, God, I, I need a house for my family. And she's a believer. She said, I need, I need a place to live. And I don't have any land. I don't have any way to do this. And she said that a few months after that, I got some property. I was able to secure some property. And then she said, she, the missionary, his name's Bill. They call him Don Guillermo, Brother William or Sir William. And he told me that, that I was going to get a house that some people in, in the U.S. Had, had, had put forth what we need, and I'm going to get a house. And she said the moment that he told me that, she said, I knew that God heard me. I knew that he heard me. I knew that he was real. I knew that he loved me. A house. He, she was on her journey wondering, God, are you, are you real? Do you, do you exist? I, I need this house. We got to go, 18 of us, to, to Guatemala just to be part of God's plan to show Marisol how much that he loves her and said, I heard you, Marisol. In fact, I sent 18 people from 1,600 miles away. And I touched upon some people's hearts in the U.S. to give some finances just to build you this house. And as we dedicated that house, I told her, I said, Mighty Soul, we've come here to build this house for you. God sent us, but more importantly than this house, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you. And I know that you know that, but this is how much that he loves you. Her son is six years old. He told her that day, he said, Mommy, he said, thank God that we have our own house to live in for our family. At six, my son's four. He's probably never going to tell me, Dad, thank you for our house. It's never entered his mind. That little boy, six years old, told his mom, Mommy, I feel like God called me to be a pastor. And here's the cool thing about that. His name's Joshua. My name's Joshua. Good name. But my grandfather died in January. He was a pastor. And in lieu of flowers, the family asked, Could you, can you give, send money to Project 58 to build a house in his honor? And people did, and enough money came in to build a house in his honor. And my, me, my dad, my uncle, and my brother, we were all there on this trip. And we, building this house, we found the story. I think we all kind of collectively felt, hey, this is, this is the house that we want to build in, in the honor of my grandfather. And we got to build a house for a lady who had lost her husband, wanted to know that, God, are you real? And for a little boy named Joshua who feels called to be a pastor, it just felt right. It just kind of felt like our hearts were burning, you know? Like, wow, God, you're amazing. Did God orchestrate all that? I believe it. Can I prove it? No. But you can't talk me out of it. And we got, and I told the missionary there, and we gathered around this family. We dedicated this house. Missionary began to pray over this family. And, and I had my, my hand on the head of the little boy. And the missionary began to pray for this, this little young man who's going to be a pastor, asking God to bless him, asking God to give him all that he needs, asking God to use him to do a mighty work in that, in that village of Guatemala. And it was, just, it was just so amazing to say, it's nothing that we've done, but God, you, you, you love us so much. You sent us... 1,600 miles away to a, to a woman who prayed a year ago who the world will never know, will never know. And you touched her life, you touched her daughter's life, but for this young little young man at six, he's never going to wonder, does God love me?
does God really care? Because he gave him a house. Well, that's pretty amazing what God is, but that's, that's who God is. He, he, he loves us very, very much. We are his children, and we don't have to convince him to love us. We don't have to convince him to be proud of us. We don't have to convince him to provide for us. He did all of that in his son, Jesus Christ. Could you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to ask two questions and pray for, for you today. First question is, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Josh, I'm on that journey, but I need to encounter Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need a relationship. I want to invite him into my life. Maybe you want to re-invite him in to your life today. If you're in here this morning and you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love for you just to shoot up your hand. You say, why would I raise my hand? Thank you. Thank you. Why would I raise my hand? I just believe that when we acknowledge externally what God is doing internally, something happens on the inside of us. Second question is this. If you're here this morning and maybe you're struggling because you're a little upset with God, say, I find myself in a position I never thought I'd be in, God. This happened, but it shouldn't have. I'd like to pray for you. If you say, I just need some help. Maybe it's not with God. Maybe it's just with people. I'd love to pray for anybody in here this morning who would just like to say, you know what? I need some prayers because I'm struggling. I feel like I'm getting the raw end of the deal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This first prayer that I pray, I'd love for all of you to repeat after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. Come and be my Savior and come and sit at the head table of my life. I give you everything that I am and I receive all that your Son Jesus is. I give you an invitation to every area of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I just pray for every other individual here in this room today. They raised their hand and said, Father, they're struggling. They're in a position of, of just not really understanding what's going on. God, I ask you that you just make your presence so real to them. May their hearts begin to burn with who you are. God, may the frustration and the hopelessness and the despair, may it all begin to just begin to melt like wax. And they feel your peace and your understanding. And they know that, God, you've never left them nor forsaken them. You haven't taken a break. You're walking right there with them. And may they just recognize you that they are where they need to be. And if they're not, God, may you course correct them and they trust you to follow you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.